0: hey everyone welcome to taking the pulse a healthcare podcast i am heather hoops matthews here with and pruitt healthcare attorney matthew roberts matthew good to be with you good to be here as a former journalist it has been interesting to me to watch you over the past year get your information on the pandemic uh, from the news media and question why something's happening here or why they're not doing that we're going to talk about that today but tell me how what were the sources that you sought out to get information on the pandemic and well, primi-
1: why? Primarily, we started with original sources CDC, DHEC, uh, other governmental sources about what was happening with the pandemic. And then I had the benefit of being able to, to represent healthcare providers, so we were talking to them directly. Uh, I did not get my information on social media. Not so, at all. Not at all.
0: But I think we're going to find today that a lot of people do. I'm in the
1: minority on that. Yes,
0: and it may be shaped the debate. Right. Yes, and the discussion. After this short break, joining us will be Randy Covington. He is an award-winning television news journalist and now a professor at the University of South Carolina. And we are going to talk about how the news media delivered information on the pandemic and what that may or may not have impacted. So stay with us on Taking the Pulse. Welcome back everyone to Taking the Pulse. Joining us today in the studio is Randy Covington, an award-winning television news journalist, Uh, and now he is the Director of Special Projects and Newsplex at USC School of Journalism and Mass Communications. Randy previously worked in television news for 27 years, I know, because I had the honor of working under him for several of those years. He's led um, numerous stations to win numerous awards because he is and was a good newsman, including he's won four emmys and numerous other awards i know um, you also work some just in full disclosure with np strategy which is a wholly owned subsidiary of Nexen pruitt the law firm where matthew works uh, and we do strategic communications for clients you are an advisor with us and so it's great to have you in this room for a variety of reasons Before we dig in to the details of social media and ethics and all sorts of things, give us your high level assessment of how you think the media did when it came to covering a story of this magnitude, the pandemic.
2: In a journalist career, you might cover three or four stories this big. Mm -hmm. All right. So this is an extraordinary event. It's very, very challenging. And on big stories like this, and it's my observation, that they bring out the best in journalism, and they also bring out some of the worst in journalism. And if we deconstruct what has happened over the last 15, 16 months, I think we can see examples of both.
0: Mm. So not surprising for you?
2: Not really, um, no. no. Okay. It, it always is this way. If the story is big enough, we are obsessed with winning and winning is defined in different ways. And being first with inaccurate information is uh, a win for a short period of time, but then a loss. Uh, taking a piece of information and sensationalizing it, a win at first, in the bigger picture, at lo- um, a loss. Mm-hmm. However, and Heather, you know my biases. Uh, I place a great value on in-depth and investigative reporting. Um, helping people actually understand complex things. And I've seen some extraordinary work on this story. So it's both.
1: It's both. Uh, Randy, thanks for coming here. This is an important issue and we, we are excited to have you here. Let's start with the ethics, the ethics of journalism, uh, journalists and when they are facing a huge story like this, like the pandemic and their reporting can impact the way people feel about it and the actions they take. How do journalists weigh their ethical duty to get things right versus how they report something that can be life or death with respect to the people that hear their reporting?
2: All right. So I'm going to reframe that just a little Uh, bit. Please do. Because in the newsroom, while ethics are important, the first priority is just figuring out what the story is. So in my opinion, the foundation of good journalism is seeking the truth. So when I send a story out, a reporter out to cover a story, what seems to be true at nine o'clock in the morning may or may not be true at three o'clock in the afternoon. All right, so rather than starting the conversation with with what we think the story is ethical or not, let's just go find out what the story is. Mm -hmm. Then I hope we do have a conversation about Is it a big story, is it a small story? Should it be used at all? Mm -hmm. Um, Is it the lead or is it 20 seconds in the second block of the TV newscast? So in covering a story like this, there's enormous public interest. So if in fact we are serving public interest, if in fact we we want people to read our newspaper, if we want them to watch our newscast, we're going to have to offer them something that they find a value. So as an editor, I'm trying to figure out what I can offer that will provide knowledge and be of value. But I I would like to think that I'm doing that humbly, that what seems to be the case in the first month of the coronavirus, surface transmission, Sure. Every piece of grocery has to be Cloroxed and so forth. May not be the truth in the second month.
1: And obviously, things changed during the course of this. It, it evolved. But if you start looking back into the to the worst parts of the pandemic, hopefully they're the worst. It's every news story, or seemingly every news story, led with deaths, deaths, deaths. Not the lead was not here. Are the steps we're making to improve how we're treating people and the steps we're making on developing the vaccine, because if you think about it, there was talk about the vaccine on the side, but boom, in in November, December, we have one. But it seemed to be, we were hearing about the deaths, clearly important, relevant, but that led every time.
2: All right, so this reminds me of the conversation I would have at the TV station, where somebody would say, my son made the eighth grade honor roll, and you didn't put it, on the news. All you care about are negative things. And instead of covering my son making the eighth grade honor roll, you covered that shooting where they killed three students. Yes, I did. I made the judgment that more people would be concerned about the shooting that killed three students than your son being on the eighth grade honor roll. I'm sure it's very important to you and I'm not disrespectful of that. So in the case of a, a pandemic that, uh, looked this morning, 587,000 deaths in the U.S., 3.43 million worldwide. That's a pretty big part of the story. And yes, I can profile my students, most of whom had a very minimal experience when they got the coronavirus. I had multiple students with it, but I, there's also one of them that ended up in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Heather and I know people who die, some with pre existing conditions. So it is an interesting intellectual conversation. How do you get the, the right balance between blowing something out of proportion versus the nuances of a disease that really killed you know, out of those 587,000 deaths? That's out of 33 million reported right. cases. And they're probably more right. than $33 million. Right. So it's an interesting intellectual discussion, but I think it's ethically defensible to say when you have that many deaths, and I would add as much denial as we right. saw in society, that there actually was an ethical argument made to tell that story over and over again because a lot of people didn't want to hear it.
0: I, and I hear true. what you're saying, but let me ask you this sure isn't it true that a negative maybe or shocking fact may grab someone's attention more than a positive fact how do you add that into the conversation knowing that really newspapers TV stations they're businesses sure. they're looking for eyeballs mm-hmm. and yeah. who's going to stay on and how long and I wondered if they're continually leading with deaths because death is, it d- uh, creates a sense of urgency in me.
2: Sure. Um, the answer to the question is yes. <laughs>
0: uh,
2: in a past life uh, before um, WIS, where we worked together, uh, I was news director in Philadelphia where I had a large budget and we did a lot of real-time response testing hmm. where you would get a demographic cross-section of your viewers women men ages races and so forth and you'd have them watch newscasts and they would have a dial in front of them if they liked something they turned it to the right if they didn't like something they turned it to the left and it didn't move them that kind of stayed in the middle so there would be a debrief at the beginning where they would talk about there's too much negative and too much violence, and so forth. And then they would watch the newscast. You show them the traffic accident, over there at the right. Show them that shooting, over there at the right. Well, now let's talk about that important issue of municipal finance. It started going the wrong way. Mm. So as a news editor, I accept the responsibility of telling the entire story, yes. all right? As a editor who wants to attract an audience, don't be surprised if I'm giving the audience coverage that they will find more interesting because they do have alternatives. They might turn the channel,
0: God forbid. Right, Right. correct.
1: With the rise of social media, we know that people are getting their news from different uh, sources and the COVID-19 global pandemic really evidenced that, I think. Yes. Um, What is your take on how people got their news about the pandemic and how they reacted to it and how that framed their opinion uh, about the, how they think about things this to
2: in my view in in the, in the sort of the big picture is one of the big stories of the media and the coronavirus historically we in the media set the journalistic agenda we decide what the priorities are and and we really set the table for the conversations that are being held all over the country in this story i would argue that the journalistic agenda was being set online, on social media. And we, in traditional media, for the most part, were really responding to conversations that were happening on, online. That's simplistic, but it's not entirely wrong.
1: No, I think um, you're 100% right. We,
2: we have had profound changes in the way people get news and information. And it's a larger societal conversation. But we now gravitate to sources of information that we like. Hmm. Not necessarily sources of information that we trust. And, And that issue, in my view, goes to the core of whether or not there's much future in journalism as we have known it in our professional careers.
0: Do you think there are outlets that are, and I hear people say this as a former journalist, they're like, you can't trust anyone anymore. They're either, you know, to the left or to the right. There's no one down the middle. You can't get your facts from anyone down the middle.
2: All right. So I find TV stations, for the most part, still are trying to attract a a down-the-middle audience. Are you
0: talking about local? Local TV stations, yes, exactly.
2: Um, With print, that's less so, particularly on the national level. Uh, certainly with cable news, right. you know, in their pick your flavor yeah, and yeah. that's what you're going to get. Right. So, as I think about this, what is the hope? Well, I would like to think that in the end, people realize there's a value of getting the truth, mm-hmm. not the spin. The spin from one side, the spin from another side, the truth. But that's much easier said. done Mm -hmm. so um, Stephen Brill the um, lawyer journalist founder of Court TV the American lawyer magazine Mm -hmm. uh, Brill has a product called NewsGuard which rates uh, news organizations for their credibility the Richland library here actually subscribes to NewsGuard so if you are at the library and you're doing a search on the coronavirus, you're going to see a NewsGuard evaluation on whether a source is credible or not.
0: Wow. Uh,
2: I'm not sure that's a consumer product, that may be more of a B2B product, mm-hmm. uh, but that's the direction ideally where we gravitate to news organizations that we can trust. Unfortunately, the forces in play in 2021 are exactly the opposite. We are gravitating to news organizations that we agree with. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: I, you're obviously correct on the impact of social media. We saw that in the election of 2016, how, what a powerful role it played. But now we have public health issues. So now it is life and death. It's not just politics. Yes. And so now we have issues about how how was the, the COVID-19 virus transmitted? How do you get it? Um, how do you protect yourself? Do masks work? Does the vaccine work? These are important issues where facts and truth matter. What can be done now by journalists of all ill to make sure that there's on the public health issues, you take the gamesmanship out and focus on the facts?
0: All
2: right, so I would argue that Journalists, for the most part, are doing that. They're citing credible sources. And they're, when you have somebody who says that Bill Gates has a microchip in the vaccine and stuff, that gets knocked down by most mainstream news organizations. But social media is where this stuff proliferates. So this leads us to... Uh, Something that I talk a lot about in my classes, which is what should we expect to Facebook, YouTube, uh, the big platforms? Um, and we're going to digress for just a minute here, but our laws something called the Communications Decency Act of 1996, Section 230, our laws say those social media platforms are like the telephone company. If you get an obscene phone call, you can't sue the telephone company. You're just a conduit. The reality, and so the social media platforms are protected by this law, where if somebody posts that Bill Gates is putting microchips in the vaccine, that, or go down the list of the crazy things that are out there, uh, the social media platforms are basically unaccountable. Now, the argument is we have free speech, mm-hmm. The issue though is that these platforms have algorithms that decide what someone is going to see. So um, before the coronavirus, if you went on YouTube and watched a pro-vaccination video, in the right-hand column, the product of the YouTube recommendation engine, you would see a list of anti-vax videos placed there by an algorithm, simply because the algorithm knew that they would capture your intention, would engage you, that would keep you on the platform longer so you could sell more ads for YouTube. Not a healthy situation. Because of the coronavirus and because of the threat of additional regulation, uh, the platforms have cleaned up their act on the coronavirus. Now, if you start looking around, you will see more reputable sources on the recommendation engine their suggestions and you will see little boxes which will refer you for reliable information and so forth so i've seen under threat of regulation deregulation dereg- the platforms respond but that's only in one area right. and how many other areas out there where the mean, meaning
1: only on the coronavirus exactly right.
2: Are, right. where and this is in the us right. I mean, the, sure. these platforms, particularly Facebook, operate all over the world. And and the algorithms, again, they, they're apolitical. They just know that something is hot. People are sharing it. So this issue, and from my perspective, there are any number of solutions. Cutting the things down in spies, more regulation. I don't particularly like that. Government involvement, I don't like that. Um, hiring more fact checkers for Facebook. I don't know how many, you know, hundreds of thousands of fact checkers you would have and you still have stuff slip through. So it's a thorny thorny issue, but two things. One, I don't think the algorithms should uh, be promoting uh, bad actors. And that's subjective. And I may think someone's a bad actor and Somebody else may say, that's my hero, but still, somebody has to make a decision. That person is lying. That person is trying to stir up trouble. So I do think there's a role for a human editor. Secondly, while it's not the same as a TV station or a newspaper, if a social media platform continues to promote something that's causing societal harm, I think there has to be some degree of accountability. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's after some process of a notification that unless they respond, then they become liable. But to me, those things are inevitable. But as with everything, it's complex. Lawyers will be involved, lobbyists will be involved, For sure. uh, laws will be written, then they'll be watered down and then it'll become more complicated and who knows how it plays out because the platforms are very wealthy and very plugged in.
0: Mm-hmm. Speaking of those platforms, i think for the first time in my life i saw during the pandemic more mainstream journalists posting personal opinions on those platforms and i was stunned by it because i you know being a former practitioner i'd always have done i wouldn't have done it because i wouldn't have wanted to look object uh, subjective
2: heather as a reporter covering a political race literally would be counting the number of words that she said about one candidate, to make sure she had a similar number of words she said about the other Because I know you
0: would have been counting two to make sure well, I was well. fair. But
2: I mean, ethical. you were an extremely ethical reporter. Not all reporters are as good as Heather. Uh, not all of them are as ethical as Heather. But to your question, um, we've seen this phenomenon where print news organizations see a value of being on cable TV, mm. all right? And this this really is sort of how this started, mm. all right? So it isn't so much the tweet, but building the reporter up to a, being a personality. And you find this slippery slope where you have somebody saying the president's lying, fill in the blank of whatever president you want. Uh, but that's really an opinion that I don't think a reporter should be saying. Uh, mm-hmm. I always um, was troubled by Jim Acosta, mm-hmm. the CNN correspondent, who thought it was his responsibility to argue with President Trump. Mm-hmm. And my view is it's your responsibility to ask hard questions. It's not your responsibility to put yourself on the same plateau. But I'm old school and you my know, goodness. so be it. Clearly the people at CNN liked it and certainly kept him on the beat and gave him more res- Opportunities, but back to your point, we now have people who once were interested in print journalism who now have to look good on camera,
0: <laughs> right.
2: they have to have good wardrobes,
0: right?
2: Uh, they have to have something cool on the Zoom background,
0: right.
2: uh, <laughs> they have to have had media training, right? Uh, and all of a sudden, oh, and then they have to have something to say. And if you're just saying, President, fill in the blank, had a news conference today, and here's what he said, nobody's going to pay any attention. You're going to have to put a spin on it. So very slippery. And you'll see some reporters who tend to default to the facts. All right. I have a former student who covers the White House for the Washington Post, Josh Dawsey, um, from uh, Ainer, I believe, hmm. Ainer, South Carolina. And uh, when Josh is interviewed on cable news, he tends to just give the facts in his stories and his stories are really good, all right? Mm-hmm. So that's, in my view, a better way. But others feel obligated to share their opinion, which in my view, I, I understand building the brand, building a reporter, making people wanting to read that newspaper, but in my view, when you read their story, and you, they've already said this is a lie, it's kind of hard to see it as Objective. seeking the truth. Yes, this seems to be you right. already have your mind made up. So just this week, uh, we have some poor young reporter for the AP who got fired because of some tweets she had said, had written before she apparently wrote for the AP supporting the Palestinian cause. So she was right out of J school, I think, um, or right out of college, I think she went to Stanford, great education, had been a student leader, but in college, she had written things supporting uh, the Palestinians. And the AP had hired her for an entry-level job and they fired her, hmm. all right? And in my journalism world, your big time correspondents all go on cable news and you know <laughs> say stuff and you've got some poor former intern that you've hired for an entry-level job and you've hired her for something she said in college. So it, it would seem to be a um, sliding scale and very subjective.
0: Yes. Disappointing, I think. I would agree. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, um, we're out of time. We've been out of time, actually. I've enjoyed the conversation so much. Randy, thank you for sharing your thoughts with us. Um, This is anything we're going to fix today, but I do think talking about it at least will have people think about it more. From where am I getting my information? What could I do to better vet it? And don't let it control me
1: particularly on these issues of public health. And that's, I think that as we talk about public health being more important in our societies, we've learned from this pandemic, um, being able to trust data related to public health, we have to retrain the folks to have that trust in it Mm -hmm. um, or to develop the trust for the first time in some cases, because we're gonna have future pandemics and future public health issues that the media needs to cover.
0: Right, and if one of us wins the lottery, we need to start a new news organization that would be fact-based and not not need to get more eyeballs, right, right. and just deliver the facts. Randy Covington, thank you so much. Matthew, thank you for your time today. And for thank those you. of you who joined us on Taking the Pulse, we hope you enjoyed this lively conversation about healthcare information in the news media. We look forward to seeing you next time on Taking the Pulse, a healthcare podcast.